Welcome to China in Context. I'm Paul Hodges. Japan is in the spotlight as it takes on the presidency of the G7. Fumio Kishida will use it to further strengthen ties to its key ally, the United States, and also to consolidate Japan's relationship with Europe. At the end of last year, Japan also adopted a new national security strategy that gives it the ability to preempt enemy attacks for the first time since 1946. Meanwhile, on the economic front, the Bank of Japan finally bowed to the inevitable and raised the band about the 10-year interest rate to 0.5%, sparking a major sell-off in global bond markets around the world. Our guest on the podcast today is the person who usually takes the presenter's chair, Duncan Bartlett, the editor of Asian Affairs. You've been following Japan's preparations for the G7 presidency. What do you see as Mr. Kishida's priorities for this year? The Prime Minister's first priority is to protect Japan from danger. Now, this is a country which sees itself as never far from disaster. It's prone to earthquakes and tsunamis. For the past few years, it's been experiencing a pandemic. And alongside the natural disasters and plagues, come the man-made threats. So when North Korea tests a rocket, and it's been doing that a lot recently, alarms go off on the mobile phones of millions of people in Japan, and they learn instantly that a missile is flying over Japanese territory. It'll be seven o'clock in the morning when the warning sounds. You can imagine the tension that people feel. Everybody in Japan knows that Kim Jong-un has declared that North Korea is a nuclear weapon state and that Japan could be a target. So with that in mind, Mr. Kishida is going to use this period as the president of the G7 for two things. He'll use what he describes as vigorous diplomacy to consolidate relationships with the G7 countries. And the most powerful member of that group, of course, is the United States. And that's why Mr. Kishida went to Washington in January, as well as those meetings in London and Paris and Rome. And at the same time, Mr. Kashida will do everything in his power to try to pull the world back from the brink of nuclear conflict. And that message will be particularly powerful as he delivers it alongside the leaders of nuclear armed powers, including the United States, France and Great Britain. Now, the threat to Japan's safety doesn't come from any of those countries, of course. The dangers are posed by North Korea, China and Russia. For a long time, Japan was friendly to Russia, which I always found quite perplexing, actually. It's not anymore. There's no love lost between Vladimir Putin and Fumio Kishida. The G7 typically focuses on trade, security, economics and now climate change. So how do you see this relating to the country's new national strategy of defence, which was published in December? Well, in answering that question, let me explain something about the role of prime ministers in Japan. They are effectively mascots of Japanese companies. Now, no other country in the world adores mascots as much as they're loved in Japan. Cute characters are used to promote towns and cities, railways, well-known landmarks like the Tokyo Tower. I've often seen people dressed up as mascots of bears, frogs and rabbits, dancing and waving at people at railway stations. 
you know, it actually takes quite a bit of training to become an expert mascot. You enroll at a course at one of the country's specialist schools for mascots, and then you learn how to wave and dance. Perhaps it could be a late life career option for you, Paul. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm always on the outlook for something like that. But um, in, in, in terms of the defence strategy, uh, how does him being a mascot relate to this? Well, mascots aren't hired to run a business, nor are they appointed as generals. And the same principle applies to prime ministers in Japan. They represent the interests of Japan at international meetings. And of course, they represent the Japanese self-defense force, but they're not the commander in the same way that the president of the United States is commander in chief of the US military. And in terms of economics, a prime minister who clashes with the business lobby will soon find themselves out of a job. The average term in office for a Japanese prime minister is very, very short. So Mr. Kashida will want to keep on the right side of those big businesses. He's got an agenda which he calls the new capitalism. It's a, a centre-right approach, which is encouraging companies to be paternalistic towards their employees, responsible stewards of the environment. I mean, the sort of thing that you read about in the Financial Times or The Economist. Trade with other countries, that's encouraged. Economic growth, that's a goal. You know, but I don't think that economic growth is very likely in Japan in 2023. I think it's heading towards a recession, just like most European countries. I wanted to come on to that because, uh, as we mentioned, there was this shockwave that went through the world economy just before Christmas, when the Bank of Japan, after years of refusing to allow uh, yields on the main bond, the 10-year bond, to rise, suddenly cut cracked. Uh, the, the yen you know, had gone from 130 down to 150 against the dollar. Clearly, uh, for Kishida-san, this would be very embarrassing. He was president of chairman of the G7, and the yen went to 200. So suddenly the Bank of Japan cracked. Now, it doesn't seem to me that you can crack once and then go back. We seem to be seeing a big change now from Abenomics and the Three Arrows and all of this talk from the last mascot, if you like. Where does this go, Duncan? Well, Paul, you're right to say it was a shock to the markets when Japan widened the band in which the 10-year government bonds could trade from 25 to 50 basis points. Because up to that point, Japan's central bank had been an outlier. It's been maintaining this very loose monetary policy while the other countries were tightening their approach and raising interest rates. Now, you're an economically literate person, Paul, so you know that widening the curb on bonds is not the same thing as an interest rate hike. But nevertheless, Traders took it as a signal that the Bank of Japan was very gently signalling a shift in policy. I wouldn't say that it's put its foot on the accelerator, but it is looking in the rearview mirror and considering if it should pick up speed. And my personal view is, yes, it should. It should be more assertive. It needs to deal with Japan's inflation problem. And I think it will be easier to adjust policy now than later in the year. The point is that the Bank of Japan's governor, Haruhiko Kuroda, is very respected by the markets, but he's going to be stepping down in the spring at the end of his term to be replaced by someone new. 
And there could be quite a jolt if there's a policy shift just as that new person takes over. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, shifting gear a bit, Duncan, uh, much of the work during a G7 presidency is done by Sherpas, uh, senior civil servants from each country who develop the agenda and aim to resolve policy differences ahead of the actual summits. I see that Japan's Sherpa, Ambassador Nakamura, has laid great stress on the need to boost what he calls coordinated problem solving in a fragmenting world. How do you see this initiative developing? I like that phrase, coordinated problem solving in a fragmented world. And in my view, that's how the Japanese address pretty much every challenge, through meetings, through discussions, by reaching a consensus. And on the whole, the people in Japan have an excellent group dynamic. However, it's considerably harder to coordinate problem solving on an international level. Let me give you an example. I'm talking about the United Nations. Now, North Korea is under multiple United Nations Security Council sanctions over its nuclear and missile activity, and it has been since 2006. Nevertheless, North Korea is preparing to conduct another nuclear test soon. It's not just my opinion. That's the message coming from the United States. That's the message coming from South Korea. It's a terrifying prospect for people in Japan. So that is why the North Korean issue will be very high on the agenda during Japan's term as the president of the G7. And it's worth mentioning that Joe Biden's position on this is absolute full support for Japan's recently released national security strategy and its term as a non-permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. I see that Hiroshima has been chosen by uh, Kishida-san as the venue for the G7 summit in May. I mean, that's got all kinds of resonance for everyone. Mr. Kishida is from Hiroshima, and ah. Mr. Biden has long been scheduled to attend that G7 summit in that city between May the 19th and May the 21st. What you may not realise is that Joe Biden may also visit Nagasaki. So a trip to Nagasaki could come before or after the Hiroshima event. I mean, it does depend on the support of the US State Department, which takes the lead on foreign affairs. Uh, the State Department's goal in the Indo-Pacific is to maintain a strong set of friendships and alliances to counter China. No president of the United States of America has ever traveled from Hiroshima to Nagasaki. But imagine how significant it would be if Joe Biden flies between those two cities on Air Force One. And let me just you know, really re-emphasize, Paul, the importance of this national security strategy, which was published at the end of 2022. It states very clearly the Japan-US alliance, including the provision of extended deterrence, will remain the cornerstone of Japan's national security policy. But you know, against that, the document also says that as a peace-loving nation, Japan will adhere to the basic policy of maintaining an exclusively national defense-orientated policy, not becoming a military power that poses a threat to other countries. In my role as the editor of Asian Affairs, I often speak with people from Asia. They don't see Japan as a potential aggressor. Perhaps that's not entirely true, actually, because 
Chinese state media presents Japan as a threat, and it reminds people that Japan invaded China and occupied parts of Manchuria in the middle of the last century. And there were acts of brutality by the Japanese Imperial Army against Chinese citizens in places such as Nanjing. So that brings me on to my last question, Duncan. I mean, this has been fascinating. I'm learning a lot. How do you think that relationship between Japan and China is going to develop this year? Well, I don't know whether you heard the uh, podcast that I made with Bill Emmett, the uh, chair of the Japan Society, which we broadcast a couple of weeks ago. Mm. He quoted some words that were spoken to him by the Japanese politician Taro Aso, who said, Japan and China have been enemies for a thousand years. Why would you expect that to change now? Now, I did wonder whether I should interrupt Mr. Emmett and say they're not enemies. But he's right, of course, that China and Japan are definitely rivals. Japan doesn't like the way that China is taking a threatening stance towards Taiwan. It doesn't like China's military buildup. It's angry over Xi Jinping's refusal to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's fed up with the provocative actions of the Chinese Coast Guard vessels around the Senkaku Islands. However, from the perspective of trade and economics, Japan needs China. It wants Chinese tourists to return to Japan and spend their money in shops and restaurants and to go all the way out into the remote rural areas to take hot baths in those spas. You know, people who are involved in business in Japan, and I'm talking about small businesses and big businesses, they don't want to get caught up in sanctions against China. So let me take you back to what I said at the start, Paul. The new national security policy, which was published last year, commits Japan to vigorous diplomacy. I think there's going to be vigorous diplomacy in Washington at the start of the year, vigorous diplomacy in Hiroshima and perhaps Nagasaki in the middle of the year. And who knows, maybe some vigorous diplomacy in Beijing at the end of 2023. Maybe... Mr. Kashida will get the red carpet treatment of the Great Hall of the People. However, I think at this stage, a handshake between the leaders of Japan and China, that's looking unlikely. Thank you very much, Duncan, for explaining Japan's priorities for the G7 this year to us. I found your answers really revealing and helpful. That was Duncan Bartlett, Editor of Asian Affairs. I am Paul Hodges, Chairman of New Normal Consulting. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team. 